You are listening to Viva and Barnes Law for the People, an American and Canadian lawyer breaking down the latest in the legal world in terms everyone can understand. Enjoy the podcast. So I just spent the night in hospital with chest pain. I've had chest pain for about a week. It started about a week after I got my second dose of Pfizer. Um, I'm feeling okay. The pain's being managed with medication. Um, and the doctors believe it's pericarditis, which is a very rare side effect of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, it can be treated, which is the important thing. Um, and really, I just wanted to film this message to say that even despite these side effects, I would get the vaccine again. Um, for me, it's more important that we all protect ourselves and save lives, make the sacrifices that we need to for the greater good, then, um, you know, and I think the benefits of that far outweigh any potential side effects, um, particularly given the, the side effects of COVID, the long-term impacts can be disastrous. So um, I implore everyone to, to get the vaccine. Some of us might have to take it on the chin, take some of the side effects on the chin. Take it on the chin. Um, Take pericarditis on the chin. They pale in comparison to COVID, to the risks of COVID. So let's do this. Stay strong. Let's do this. We can get through this. Um, We just have to do our part. This makes me... Hold on. We're we're going to walk through this in a second. Uh, I I don't want to say this enrages me. Because I don't know whether or not to be enraged at this individual or just feel terrible for this individual. I like, I, I, I would, part of me feels like there is literally, maybe not literally, someone holding a proverbial gun to this woman's head off camera saying, You're in the hospital. We can't hide this, but you damn well better keep promoting this. Like, I, 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 it, it, I don't know whether to feel sorry for her or to be angry at her or a little bit of A and a little bit of B. I would love to ask her how she feels now. I would love to ask her if this statement, this public service announcement in support of a medical procedure that just gave her pericarditis, pericarditis, inflammation of the muscle around the heart. I forget that myocarditis is inflammation of the muscle of the heart. Pericarditis is inflammation of the sac around the heart. I, I would like to ask her um, if this statement was made willingly with her consent, if she was pressured by her employers. For those of you who don't know, I should have, I should have backed this up a little bit. Uh, let, me just, let me just refresh because whenever I go back, the, the, the woman who made this statement, Georgia Clark, Georgia B. Clark, Senior Communications Advisor, Legal Aid, NSW, ex-journalist, Daily Telegraph, ARV, A journalist. I don't know if she was a a, a journalist at the time or if she was an ex-journalist at the time. Um, I want to know if this statement was made voluntarily, if there was overt pressure, or if she just felt... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Discreet pressure, social pressure. You're in the hospital for for pericarditis. By the way, Winston, get get on it. Got my... Mike cable wrapped around him. You're in the hospital for heart 
SAC inflammation, pericarditis. It's treatable though. You know what else is treatable? COVID. A young woman with chest pain for about a week, as if, you know, heart inflammation, treat it, it's gone. No harm, no foul. Line yourself up for your next jab and wait for the punchline of this. Now, by the way, in fairness, this is over a year ago. Although even a year ago, I think people were starting to get wise to the fact that the, the jippy jab did not prevent transmission. In which case, everything that follows in this public service announcement for a medical procedure which harmed her, I won't say it came close to ending her life, although a great many people you know, passed suddenly afterwards, it doesn't stop transmission. Whether or not it was known then, like it's known now, I think it was. Very rare. One, one in, one in 5,000. One in 5,000. Very rare. You know what else can be treated? You, you know what else is pretty rare? Young people passing from the, from the Rona. Despite this, despite the side effects. Now, this is where I, I don't know whether or not to feel bad or to feel angry. If this person now has suffered potentially irreversible, although it was treated, uh, serious side effects, now urging others to go out and do it because she thinks it's for the greater good, whatever that possible greater good could be. Is this a case of brainwashed Stockholm syndrome? Is this a case of someone who actually believes this? Or is this a case of misery loves company? I took it on the chin. Now it's your turn to risk taking it on the chin. Uh, by the way, I would, love, I would love to talk to her today to see if she feels the same way today that she did a year ago. But It doesn't prevent transmission. Does this statement still hold true? Uh, you, you want to sacrifice your own heart, you go ahead and do that. Oh, oh yeah, just, just a wee bit of pericarditis. They, they can be. I, I suspect the long-term impacts of pericarditis can also be disastrous. Some of us might, who the hell do you think you're talking for? I, I, I want to, like, some of us might have, that's a risk she's willing to take. Oh, really? August, August, 2021, we knew enough. I, 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 even if I'm supposed to be angry with her, I still feel bad for her. That is, that is pathological. It's like, it's like, in a way, it's sort of like tattooing or the addiction to tattooing. I, I've, I've discussed this with people. It, it generates a certain bit of pain when, it, when it's done. It releases endorphins. You feel like you've gotten through some pain and you have something to show for it. And it, it's sort of a rush. I appreciate that. And, and I appreciate that with no judgment. This pathological Risk of harming yourself for no better. You don't even have a tattoo to show for it at the end of it. I mean, you get, you get a hospital stay to show for it. This is like the thrill. 
the risk. Virtue signaling so hard that you're willing to give yourself the risk of myocarditis, pericarditis, whatever other potential side effects you want. But it feels so good that just saying, I do it again. <clears throat> that releases the virtue endorphins that we all need. By the way, there, there is a, there is a, a, a bigger punchline to this. The same journalist, um, let me just see what, when this picture was from. Did I get the date on this? August 20th. I just saw my cardiologist. This is her cardiologist giving her this advice. And the inflammatory markers for the pericarditis are gone. So I'm well and truly on the mend. I, I, I hope you're right. I just know what other doctors have told me about the long-term effects of myocarditis and pericarditis. I still have to lay low with exercise. Just, just you know, minor things because I can't stress my heart. Just that thing, that thing in the center of my body that controls pretty much everything else. I still have to lay low and exercise and monitor for relapse, but I'm feeling better. He also says I should be okay to get a booster shot. I'd like to know the name of that, 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 that cardiologist so that I can make sure never to see that person, never to have a loved one go to visit that cardiologist. Oh, he says, I should lay low for a while. You'll get over it. Don't exercise though. Don't want to stress your heart after this bout of pericarditis, but you should be good for the booster of the very same vaccine that gave you pericarditis in the first place. If that cardiologist told her that, and I would like to ask her this as well, that cardiologist should have his or her license revoked. Your heart doesn't control everything else. Your heart pumps blood so everything else continues to work. That's what I, your brain controls everything. The center stem controls your nervous system. Your heart continues to allow everything else to function. I know, Steve, it was sort of, oh God. So now I'm going to get fact-checked. Viva, wrongly, Viva the medical hypochondriac, wrongly suggests the heart control. The heart does control everything. No circulating blood, nothing. No brain, no central nervous system, no heart automatically pumping blood. Although, although, Mike the chicken, Mike the headless chicken, people. <laughs> Mike the headless chicken had his head cut off. Um, but it still left a portion of the brain that controlled the central nervous system. Its heart continued to beat and it became a circus freak show for a little while uh, with its owner feeding it down the gullet with a pipit after it had healed. It had no head. Guys, look it up. Mike the Headless Chicken. So anyways, I, I, the thing is, I don't want to be too mean on that person. I don't know who she is and I genuinely feel bad for her. I, would, I, I mean, I know who she is from a social media perspective. I would love to have an interview with her to ask all these questions. Was that a voluntary or coerced statement? Does she still feel the same way now? And has she, has she had any long-term effects that she would be willing to disclose? <laughs> I was being pedantic, Viva. I know, I know, and as I know as well. Um, okay, standard disclaimers, no medical advice whatsoever. <laughs> no medical advice, no legal advice, no election fortification advice, although we're gonna be talking about some serious election chicanery it's sunday it's sunday after the tuesday of the midterms and they're still counting ballots and there's nothing abnormal about that people it's just the new democracy uh was graphic a graphic park worth the 109 dollars it cost to take two kids looked like it it was good i went to i'll close off the video with that with a little bit of that from viva family we went to lion country safari drive safari uh, it was, 
in it's in Florida. I, I don't know where it is. It's sort of like on the border of the Everglades, uh, west of Okeechobee, and a little south. It was a hundred and yeah, it was one hundred nine dollars and twenty one cents for one adult and two kids. Was it worth it? You know, what else am I? If you have them, if you you know you have a hundred bucks, what else are you going to do on a Saturday? Uh, and you build memories. Memories are invaluable. Uh, is it worth doing twice? Maybe not. Uh, thank you for the book tweet, Viva. I hope you enjoy it. Unacceptable Fringe, who wrote the book. You know what? That's a good segue into this. Um, Unacceptable Fringe, Derek Smith. You may know him from such fantastic parody books as The Prime Minister, How the Prime Minister Stole Freedom. He's written another one, and it's... I don't know how he came up with this stroke of genius for the title. Uh, are we seeing the same thing that I'm seeing right here? Okay, yeah, there we go. One face, two face, black face, blue face. I mean, it's, it's, it's genius. In the city of Ottawa, you've probably heard this before, for, but what you don't realize is we missed so much more. Who runs the country and affects your bills? Who holds the seats inside Parliament Hill? Join us for a tour as we will go places to show you all of the Prime Minister's faces. Trust us, they'll be honest. They'll have nothing to hide. We hope so at least. So take a look inside. And there's a, I'm in this book, which is not the reason for which I'm publicizing it. Publicize the last one as well, but I'm in it. And the, I put the Amazon affiliate link in there that means buy it off amazon i get some kickback from bezos or something i don't even know how it works but figured if someone's going to buy something buy it through an amazon link it's uh good stuff okay let me close that up um so thank you for the book no derek thank you for writing amazing stuff ontario trying to bring back masks do we a not wear them b wear the most obvious ineffectual mask ever i cannot suggest or recommend people break the law or people, you know, defy regulation uh, to prove a point. It's not something I can recommend other people do. It's I think it's immoral, unethical to tell other people to go break the law when you're not the one who's going to have to um, live with the consequences. Oh boy, I don't know what I would do at this point in time. I mean, it's like it's it's we're living through idiocracy. We're living through insanity as defined by Albert Einstein. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. P.O. Rourke, 22, Rumble Rant, $10 Rumble Rant, says, interview Ed Dowd about his research on sudden death syndrome. I will. We got a $10 P.O. Rourke says, interview, oh, that's the same, same chat. I hope you didn't mean to do that twice. Mahoyo says, Viva, usually when someone says the greater good, it's never the greater good. That was a $5 Rumble Rant. And joining the Rumble Rumble Angry Otter. Now, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get to the Rumble Rants throughout the stream. I will screen grab them and do what I did last week, a Locals exclusive read the next day. Um, but just speaking of the insanity, and, and it's, it's actual... Hold on a second, I don't have the book. It's actual insanity. What's coming out of Canada? It's, it's, it's immoral insanity. This might be one of my subtlest... Uh, and most amazing tweets ever. I'll get to it in a second. Uh, here we go. The Globe and Mail. We've talked about it before, but Canada is now expanding euthanasia. It's now this sunset provision of, of the original euthanasia law is now being sunsetted to allow euthanasia of the mentally ill. Um, can Canada will allow assisted dying for mental illness starting in March. Has there been enough time to get it right? 
and I just, it's, it's, my, it's my talking point. Mental illness in law vitiates consent. Depending on the type of illness, it, it, it can vitiate consent in contracts. That's why I said can. Not always. It can render someone not criminally responsible for their actions. Can, not always. Even someone who is mentally ill can still be criminally responsible under certain, you know, if they knew at the time that what they were doing was wrong. If they had the requisite mens rea intent at the time. But it can. And now it's good enough for Justin Trudeau to allow them to consent to being euthanized by the state. This is, this is the absolute state of Canada. Expanding euthanasia from what has already been, an, I, I say, an unconscionable expansion of euthanasia. 2021, 10,064 Canadians euthanized by the state or euthanized having gotten the rubber stamp from this. Uh, not a rubber stamp, the stamp of approval from the state. And now they're expanding it even more. For, just to put that into perspective, by my math, in 2021, just trying to you know, put all the, uh, the numbers together, by my math, in 2021, 17,000 Canadians died from COVID. That was enough to shut down the country, mask up children, compel the jibby jab, 17,000 in 2021. I think it was like the balance was in 2020 because there's been like 40 some odd thousand deaths of COVID since the beginning in Canada. 17,000 deaths from an illness to shut down the country while the government simultaneously authorizes euthanasia in over 10,000 people. Try, try to do the math on that. This is probably my subtlest, but I think my most powerful tweet. Do you know who else euthanized the mentally ill Justin Trudeau? It, yes, it's a Hitler reference. Look up Action for Acton for I forget exactly what the name of the program was. They called the Mercy Wings back in the 30s. And you know, like every now and every people always say, you know who else, you know who else like to do something totally innocuous in order to equate uh a political party or a political leader to Hitler? Like, oh, you know who else used to deny elections? Uh, Hitler. You know who else used to drink coffee? Uh, Hitler. Hey, Trump drinks coffee. Trump denied. There are stupid comparisons, and then there are actually meaningful ones. You know who else used to euthanize the mentally ill? And that's right. You got it right. Yeah, people are saying Operation T4. It was, it was like Axion. There was a German word for it. Action T4. Bar Barnes will know. Maybe he'll, um, maybe he'll, 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 He'll help us with this. Barnes is in the backdrop, people. And uh, just so everybody knows, if I look distracted or if I have to, for uh, uh, what's the word? Suddenly put my mic and camera on mute. My wife is out of town for a week. I've got two kids and now a guest at the house. I hear everything. My daddy senses are tingling. I hear laughing. If I hear too much silence or crying, I might have to run into the other room. Uh, so for the next week, it's going to be me and the kids. Uh, so that's it. Barnes is the goat. Now, here we go. Intelligentsia action. So that's it. Just if I, if I look or sound distracted or if I have to leave, uh, we'll see. Okay, I'm bringing in the Barnes right now. And then in about 10 minutes, we're going to go exclusive on Rumble. The link is there. So get in on it, people. Robert, sir, how goes the battle? Uh, good, good. Uh, well, let's see. What do you have behind you? I think we've seen that book and I... I wish I, I wish I knew cigars enough to know what that was from the label, but book and cigar before we get started. Oh, sure. This is a Arturo Fuente cigar. Uh, very good uh, non-Cuban cigar. And then the book is 1775, Good Year for Revolution by Kevin Phillips, uh, who's written many great political books. He returned to writing about American history 
uh, in the early 2000s when he grew exhausted with American politics and for a period of time found that there was better respite in the past than there was in predicting the short-term future because of his dissatisfaction about where American political power had turned. So the uh, apropos, uh, given certain uh, circumstances. All right. And now, did you see that? Did you see the CanCon video about Dallas, Texas, getting votes after polls are closed? I don't I don't think so, but I think we're going to talk about it tonight. Uh, Robert, I mean, look, we might not get through everything tonight, but uh, you want to get, do we give an overview or do we just start talking? Yeah, no, we'll go through the, the list. Um, the uh, election contest and election uh, cases that may be forthcoming. We'll see. We'll get to that uh, a little bit later in the show. We have FTX. The FTX scandal has many implications, including not limited to the uh, election as well. Uh, Judicial Watch uses FOIA to find uh, biolabs in Ukraine. In fact, we're being supported by the U.S. government. Uh, Whether or not criminal defamation, seditious libel is still on the books and is still constitutional in America. Uh, Dave Portnoy's uh, defamation case, what its status is. The Covington kids have a defamation petition pending before the Kentucky Supreme Court. Uh, Vindman, what happened to his case against Trump and Giuliani in the in the District of Columbia? A big Second Circuit vaccine uh, mandate type case, not in the COVID vaccine context, but in the measles context. Uh, a lockdown lawsuit, what happened to it when it went to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals? A, uh, a All the Fed informants that keep popping up in Oath Keeper cases. Uh, can a judgment out of Chinese arbitration be enforced in the United States? The answer might be yes, might surprise some people. Uh, SCOTUS update, Trump taxes, uh, identity theft, and whether or not any, you know, any kind of, you know, what is identity theft? Can it apply to things that aren't actually identity theft? Well, one court said yes. Supreme Court will decide whether that's ultimately right. The Fifth Amendment, when can you take it? Can you take it in a deposition and then not take it later or not take it at the deposition and then take it later? As showed up in the Flint case, big Second Amendment case out of New York with its new gun concealed carry law. What happened to it? Um, uh, Tyson Foods caught stealing from farmers. Shock, shock. Uh, Alexa problems at Amazon are showing up in a major case with them trying to delay discovery. Uh, And can you uh, ban pit bulls? Uh, can a city get away with that uh, as, as a case that went up before the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals? Uh, the Biden administration's attempt to uh, force doctors to do gender transition treatment and completely obliterate Title IX and redefine it to serve gender identity purposes went into federal court today or this past week, uh, the first America First Legal Center case. And then uh, you have the uh, what happens when a police chief shows up at the scene promises a family that he's going to make sure that the person suffering mental illness within is taken care of and is not shot and then goes in and shoots him. Does he still have immunity? Uh, We'll deal with that and a few scattering of other fun little cases in between. Robert, let's start with the big one because I spent, I was driving around with the kids today and they said, dad, why are we listening to this crap on the car? Cause I'm playing YouTube uh, uh, breakdowns of the FTX scandal. I don't think they understood anything of what they heard but and I, you know I, I know they didn't understand it if i'm sitting there saying holy crap i know i don't understand bitcoin it's why i've never accepted an offer to endorse bitcoin or do anything paid for bitcoin let's let, let's tackle this because I, there's probably much more to this than i can possibly understand i understand the basics of the economics as to how this happened from an economic perspective from a 
uh, a reality perspective, how this could have possibly happened. I'll try, I'll do my best, Robert. There are two uh, big or the top two, top three uh, exchanges for Bitcoin or for, for, for digital currency. One is, I forgot the name already. What's the biggest one? It's the one that bought Binance. Uh, Binance. The second is FTX. Um, FTX basically looks like it issued a bunch of tokens, its own you know, special tokens, which it valued itself, which it then sold to its second biggest shareholder, which is a, which is a related shareholder, to basically artificially inflate the books to make it look like they were liquid enough to be a tr uh, an exchange for Bitcoin. I, I don't know who the players are involved in this, but the bottom line of it is uh, it, it was a total scam fabricated equity out of thin air to falsify the books, to make it look like they were liquid, to actually carry on as an exchange. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screw it up by being too simplistic, but one of the major shareholders sold hundreds of millions of dollars of his interest in the company. Binance then says we're going to take, issues a letter of intent to say we're going to buy out this company um, and, then, and then revokes it or retracts it when they find out it's, it's, all, it's, it's a house of cards. And now we're finding out that this, the guy behind it, what's his name? I know it ends in Freed and I know his hair looks kind of like mine, which is uh, already two strikes against me, um, is a big political donor, second biggest Democrat political donor, donates apparently, I guess hedges his bets and donates to, to GOP as well, uh, and has filed for chapter 11. And this is basically going to be the straw that broke the camel's back of bringing in government regulation of digital currencies. I know I missed a bunch there, but help us out, make sense of what's going on and the hush-hush aspect to what might be going on behind the scenes with this individual who seems to be wickedly politically connected. Yeah, I might do a, a whole separate hush-hush, which you can find at vivabarneslaw.locals.com. Hush-hushes are alternative narratives to the official narrative throughout of major events through history and sometimes even predicting future ones. You can go back and watch our January 6th one that was done right after January 6th and how many things are popping like that uh, as we see the trials of the Oath Keepers and other cases. So this is a case that's got all kinds of components. So you got cryptocurrency, you got uh, a, a, a guy who died in the Caribbean predicting that something was wrong in a certain way in the suspicious circumstances. You have uh, allegations, you have un unexplained sources of original investment income. You have uh, a you have prominent Democratic donors and Democratic PACs and and Democratic leaders of the would be crypto regulatory space at the uh, Commodities and Futures Trading Commission, as well as the uh, Securities Exchange Commission, the CFTC and the SEC. You have uh, Tom Brady and major actors and major personalities who've been involved in marketing and publicizing and even a basketball NBA stadium uh, in Miami, no less. You got Bahamas, you got Argentina, you got Dubai, you got Hong Kong. So you got a little bit of everything. And you even have Ukraine that makes its necessary cameo appearance in any allegation of criminality or money laundering. So the uh, short version of what took place is that this is the second largest crypto exchange uh, for a lot of non Bitcoin, often not even Bitcoin. It's more these other digital coins, some called stable coins, some kind, some called altcoins, in the uh, blockchain derived uh, uh, space. And the, this guy was a—he's uh, uh, the son of a prominent tax lawyer 
uh, tax law professor at Stanford. Uh, his mom is also a Stanford law professor. Uh, his aunt is on the World Economic Forum and is one of the leading public health people in, in the world. And just to stop you uh, there, when you say on, we're not talking featured on the website, actively involved in policy at the WEF. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the people they promoted more than anyone of the last half decade. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who uh, graduates from MIT, uh, goes and becomes a quant. That's a derivative, kind of a derivatives analytics uh, data driven trader at a small boutique firm. And then a few years later, uh, pops up on the crypto space. And suddenly he's getting big investors and big investments. He's making all kinds of money. Supposedly he's doing it arbitraging Bitcoin between the United States and Japan and other places. But when people have tried to find out what his original source for all his money was, it's always been vague and obscure. This is a case where Theranos meets Jeffrey Epstein in many aspects, as others have commented upon, even to the point of sex scandals and the like. Sex scandals, Caribbean islands, you have all of that dynamic, uh, uh, you know, allegations of blackmail and extortion lurking uh, in the backstory as well even some suspicious uh, suicides of whether a particular crypto individual was talking about this man. So Samuel Bankman Freed, SBF as he's more popularly known, pops up on the scene in 2019 forming FTX, a crypto exchange, the goal being and offering things that some people at the time said seem a little suspicious. The goal was to get a lot, one of the great famous crypto uh, uh, frauds was actually a Canadian years ago. It appears that this guy just replicated a lot of what he did. How do you get other people's money? Well, you promise them things that sound too good to be true. So he was promising 8% rates of return that didn't quite make sense. Uh, just deposit your crypto here and you'll get a great rate of return and we'll help you leverage so that you can bet on other cryptos at 3x up to 10x uh, levels. And a lot of people were you know, well, certain people were skeptical, but not Silicon Valley, not the Democratic Party political establishment, not the folks at the SEC or the CFTC, uh, because this kid was wired and everybody connected to him was wired. They were MIT connected, SEC connected, CFTC connected, Biden administration connected, Silicon Valley connected. Uh, his father's a high-end tax lawyer, uh, law professor, also clinical psychologist, <laughs> you know. Reads like a Mark Robert novel uh, in that aspect. And the uh, and this guy sets up a very complex set of entities that look like that. He had some help, uh, you know, going from Hong Kong to the Caymans to the U.S. And, and in ways that a lot of people found too Byzantine to even figure out exactly what was connected to what. The, uh, the CNBC promotes him. Jim Cramer calls him the next J.P. Morgan. Yeah, I want, we're going to get into that. And when we get into Kevin O'Leary as to the people promoting them and whether or not they took cuts for promoting them. We, we know that Kevin O'Leary was a paid ambassador, a paid sponsor uh, and an investor. Sorry, I just wanted to pause that and we'll, we'll get back to that in a bit. And within the Bitcoin, or I should say crypt, crypto space, though all crypto sort of originally sort of triggered by Bitcoin, it's expanded into all these other altcoins and stable coins and so forth and other methods and means of using blockchain with a lot of controversy about how much of this is legit versus how much of it is a scam. The way SBF himself described his business practice led a couple of podcasters about a year ago to laugh and say, you're describing a Ponzi scheme because he's like, Oh, what you do is you create a box 
in this box you say is going to change the world to world changing box. And you get a bunch of people to believe it's going to be a world changing box. And, and, and the number one reason why they invest is they just think it will keep going up and up and up and up. Even if it's in fact, not a world changing box, it's just a box. And that he is in the process of facilitating, enabling that to occur. And he's like, who are you to say the box doesn't have value? If people say it has value, doesn't that give it value? That was as a response and reaction to people. So there was uh, actually a YouTuber who six months ago said, this looks like a Ponzi scheme, what this guy's describing. But nobody in the media covered it. Once again, like Theranos, like Madoff, both deep, deep, deep ties to the Democratic Party. Uh, they Instead, all it was was praise, 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 praise. He was described as a leader of effective altruism. He was going to spend all this money because he's particularly pandemic focused, interestingly enough. He uh, and so much so that the CFTC took photos with him. These SEC commissioners were promoting him. And the and in fact, what this reflects a deeper split in the Bitcoin space. You have on the one hand, the decentralized open source Bitcoin originalist. These are people who believe in Bitcoin because it's decentralized because it's open source, so that there's more transparency to contest the corrupting influence of centralized bank currencies. Um, On the other hand, you have people who are trying to emulate the centralized bank currencies, creating very, and they loosely call the decentralized DeFi, the, the centralized folks who they want regulation to wipe out their decentralized competitors. And this guy was with the lead on on more regulation that's why it's deeply ironic that his fraud is now going to be used as an excuse to do what he wanted to have happen which was regulate his competitors uh but he starts pouring in massive amounts of money to the democratic party second only to george soros in the history of individual contributions to a political party in the modern era you're talking about tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars and that's just what can be directly tied to him Politico had a whole piece on him a couple of months ago about how massively influential he was. He only paid off, he only made donations to a few small Republicans, names like Mitt Romney, names like Ben Sass, that might lead you to question, you know, exactly who those people are. Uh, but that's uh, where he was going. So 40 million plus at least to the Democratic Party. But, he, but because he was funneling money in so many other places, it's it's anticipated, like, for example, his mom, his mom runs an organization that's one of the biggest Democratic get out the vote organizations. Uh, the anomalies we saw in this past election, he was one of the key funders of. But then it gets even more extraordinary. He uh, the, actually before you get there, key funders of a get out to vote. Does that count as a campaign contribution or is that just that's just philanthropic? Not a oh, donor. That's, that's where all his philanthropy was going. Mm-hmm. It was there or towards pandemic work, lockdown stuff, things of that nature. The next great pandemic had to really worry about that. So the uh, uh, but it gets even worse in terms of money issues because money went to U.S. government has been giving billions and billions and billions to Ukraine. Well, it turns out, as Jim Hoft has detailed and others have detailed get the Gateway Pundit and other places. Some of this money was actually being recycled. So it went to Ukraine. Then Ukraine put money into FTX. And then FTX turned around and gave money to Democrats. In other words, it appears the Biden administration 
was illegally funding the Democratic get-out-the-vote operation and Democratic campaigns disguised as Ukrainian war support uh, and Ukrainian financial aid it, uh, is the rest. So that's all the different places this can go. Uh, the, the part of the story may or may not be connected to an unusual death in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico. A crypt, one of the uh, crypto uh, guys, one of the lead crypto folks, had put out a tweet, a weird uh, tweet, that said that he was being targeted by intelligence services because he stumbled into the scandal in the crypto space that concerned sexual scandal, Epstein-style sexual scandal, et cetera. A day or two later, they find him dead on the beach in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, the, apparently, the official narrative is going to be he went out and drowned himself. Which is an interesting thing. One of this guy's icons was a guy who was also one of the great uh, crypto guys. And a lot of people in the crypto space are Julian Assange-ish. They're people who are against the system, uh, who think centralized banks and corrupting institutions of government uh, rely upon centralized banks and manipulation of currencies to control populations. And their reason to be in the space is not just financial, but is often primarily philosophical. And for them, they're fighting the system. And one of the uh, one of this guy's icons several years ago died in an odd train accident. Uh, the official narrative was kind of like the Gary Webb. He shot himself twice in the head uh, narrative. They claimed suicide. They claimed he committed suicide by walking in front of a train. So apparently that's what happens in this crypto space. You, you say, hey, I think the government's out to get me. And then you commit suicide in the weirdest ways anybody's ever heard, like walking in front of a train or drowning yourself in a rough ocean. A couple of brutal ways to die. So, But not long after that, guy died in the Caribbean. A few weeks later, a story leaks. And the story shows that there's deep overlapping connections between FTX and the trading business that would supposed to be a separate business. And that basically the money on the books is all their own printed money. He's pretending to be a bank. You know, and the guy's name is Bankman. So, you know, I mean, it's part of his name. You know, so the, uh, 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 you know, Bankman Freed, one of those two, you can't trust people with two last names. Just saying. That's just a general rule. Uh, uh, word of the wise. But the, uh, uh, and, and as to those people who died, Remember, eternal truth number two, Epstein didn't kill himself. Uh, uh, it might be applicable in both of those contexts. But basically, uh, the what's taking it turned out he didn't have as much assets as they said. And what the assets were, were commingled between the two businesses. And not only that, the assets are their own assets. It's like they're printing their own money and claiming, ah, it's worth X and boom, like his little box analogy. So that triggered a lot of concern because a lot of people had their money in it. And he's got a bunch of money. He's a part of Robin Hood. He tried to buy part of Twitter with Elon Musk. Elon Musk thought, eh, this dude's a little weird. That's Elon Musk saying somebody's weird. But he was like, something's off with this guy. No, no go. Um, and the, uh, but he has money in all kinds of other aspects of the crypto space. He was trying to get regulation imposed so the government could take over it and green light the path for central bank digital currencies as the, practical alternative uh, to Bitcoin and everything else is how they're going to pitch it and portray it. And it turns out he's got major money issues with all these businesses. So Binance comes in and says, we're going to dump our, now they, Binance's main competitor comes in and says, well, we're going to dump what we hold in this because we don't trust what's going on. And all of a sudden there starts to be a run, a bank run, so to speak, on this sort of fake token, this box of no real value. 
And they sort of try to put a halt to it by saying, hey, we'll buy it back at 22, which lets everybody know what their margin call is, because what they've been doing is using this as an asset to borrow money from other people. The worst part that came out a day or two later was that he had been borrowing customer deposits to put into his risky trades in the other business. So uh, as all of this unfolds, he initially comes out and says, no problem, we'll get it fixed, just a liquidity issue. Uh, turns out, of course, not a liquidity issue. Turns out it's an asset bankruptcy issue. A day after he said, no worries, no problems, he files for bankruptcy for all the entities. Knowing that, another story comes out about how weird the whole getup is. Basically, he and all the executives are living together in a house where they're all sleeping with each other and other kind of weird behavior appears to be going on. Allegations of blackmail, allegations of extortion, allegations of death threats, all kinds of weird stuff that sounds just like what this guy warned about about a month ago that died under weird circumstances in the Caribbean. That was also in the crypto space. So then all of a sudden, every, all the panic hits and they put a freeze on everything. Everybody's worried about what this all means. And at that time, uh, they say, don't worry, bankruptcy, everything's going to be frozen. All of a sudden, money starts disappearing from FDX accounts. In fact, it looks like over a billion dollars. They come out and they say they've been hacked. They somehow magically were hacked at the same time SBF stepped down. So the concern is that SBF is grabbing all the money or somebody connected to him is, and he's running off. Um, the He was supposedly in the Bahamas. One story is that he's been loosely detained in the Bahamas. Another story is that a his plane was tracked going from there to Argentina. Another story is that he and a bunch of the executives were trying to flee to Dubai because of the extradition, no extradition treaty. Now, what I will say about all of those things is people have a misunderstanding about extradition. Just because there's no extradition treaty doesn't mean you don't end up back in U.S. custody. There's three ways that U.S. courts have greenlit. First of all, U.S. Green courts have said courts can obtain personal jurisdiction over someone if uh, the person is kidnapped, kidnapped by the government or kidnapped by private agents. Doesn't matter. Goes back to a Pinkerton's case, I think maybe even in Argentina or somewhere in Latin America from the late 19th century, where they said if a court obtains jurisdiction over you through kidnapping, no problem. Uh, the second is, uh, I mean, the extradition law is that if they obtain personal jurisdiction through an extradition treaty, they have to comply with the extradition treaty and the terms of the extradition order. But they, but they often find ways to weasel out of that, too. That's an issue for Julian Assange, a risk for Julian Assange. But the second problem is uh, you can just be kidnapped. The third problem is you can just get deported to the border. And the way they do this is they deport you to a plane where U.S. Marshals are waiting. Now, legally, those are the U.S. Marshals kidnapping you. Until they're in the U.S. custody, you could legally defend yourself against them, but almost nobody knows that or realizes that. Uh, and U.S. Marshals aren't eager to tell people that. So just going to a place that doesn't have extradition is no guarantee whatsoever that you don't end up back in United States criminal custody. But that is where this case is. The question is, will the media, will Congress, will some, will some smart prosecutor dig deeper to find out the degree of democratic ties to this, or will the corrupt politicians use this as their excuse to grab even more power when the problem is concentrated power to begin with? It's um, it's interesting. It makes sense of some of the talking points I've heard, which are now he donated to both parties. 
he just donated nearly 40 million to one and however much to the other. Um, yeah, about 10 grand to the other. And, and, and I know that you're going to probably cover this in a hush hush, but the idea that if, if this were um, Elroy, what's the, 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 James the Elroy. guy? If this were a James Elroy novel, uh, who would stand to benefit from this being a false flag or a setup to, to, to be the, uh, the instigation for regulation of Bitcoin digital currencies that the government has been clamoring for for a long time. How does this even get set up in the first place? Okay, fine. He starts an exchange. Uh, uh, regulated or unregulated, I presume it's not that easy to just start up an exchange and get people trading millions or whatever. However, I, I don't know what the value of the exchange was. It's not something that sets up overnight that you can do just because it's unregulated or am I just being totally naive when it comes to the cryptocurrency? No, I mean, the reason why he was able to do it, I mean, he had a lot of regulated entities. His problem wasn't regulation at all. The, his problem was recommending regulating his competitors unnecessarily. That would give businesses like his an advantage, which clearly should not be the case. As a general rule, bad idea to have your Bitcoin on, on an exchange. Just FYI. I mean, uh, people, Mark Moss, others that we've interviewed in the Bitcoin space have repeatedly said, uh, George Gammon, don't have your uh, Bitcoin on a Bitcoin exchange. Just don't do it. Uh, have it on a cold wallet, ideally. But putting that aside, I mean, he had billions of dollars, uh, billions of dollars uh, money sitting in that exchange. Most, And the real reason it was sitting there was because he was promising the ability to leverage it. He was promising the ability to the guarantee of at least a minimal rate of return on it. The, uh, things that should have been red flags of people from day one. But the reason they weren't was because he's sitting, he's talking to the CFTC head. He's talking to high-ranking SEC people. CNBC is promoting him. Bloomberg is promoting him. Leading Silicon Valley companies are promoting. That's why I say it's a lot like Theranos. So it's a case of Theranos meets Jeffrey Epstein. You get FTX. And then you get the political corruption that was also critical, essential to it. But from who benefits, right now it's going to be those people. They not only got to launder Ukrainian aid back to help Democrats, they got massive amounts of money for Democrats. That was critical to them holding so many closely contested Senate races and House races and even governor's races in the country. And now they get to use his fall to get more control and more power. So uh, the, the corrupt the people at the CFTC, at the SEC and in the Biden administration, uh, and some folks in Silicon Valley and their allies, those are the ones who really profited here. And will continue to, by the way, this is playing out. And I'll just give Kevin O'Leary a bit of a hard time because his his interview was one of the pieces that I listened to this afternoon to try to make sense of this. He he lost his investment in, in FTX, uh, maybe. Uh, FTX and Kevin O'Leary announced long-term investment in spokesperson relationship. Relationship is a remunerated relationship. This is from last year. Long-term relationship centers around equity investment and an ambassador deal to be paid in crypto. And then just to you know uh, eliminate all doubts, says Kevin O'Leary will be taking an equity stake in both FTX trading, yada, 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 along with being paid in crypto to serve as an ambassador and spokesperson to the company. And he comes out now and says, oh, I, I, got, I, I made a bad investment too. I'll learn from my mistakes. I'd, I'd like to know what the wash was between the paid in crypto for the ambassadorship and being a spokesperson and what he lost on the company. And I'd also like to know what his knowledge was going back. You know, you know, if, if you're investing in the company, uh, you're going to ask for, for spreadsheets. You're going to ask for balance sheets. You're going to ask for a lot of financial information before investing however much he invested. 
I'm, I'm a noob. I can understand the idea of saying I'm issuing tokens, which I'm evaluating at X and I'm selling them to a, a, a third party that happens to be a related entity, a, a commingled my own entity so that I can say, well, look, I sold it to Mr. X for a billion dollars. So the company must be worth $10 billion because I got nine more of these boxes. And then you find out that that company is indirectly or directly owned by the same individual. I could figure that out. I'm an idiot. Kevin O'Leary is either a bigger idiot than me, or he's not as much of an idiot as he says he is now to have lost his investment. Uh, amazing. Well, where, where does it go for the time being? Not to give anybody any investment advice, but like, I, I don't I think they have to. I think they have to indict him and everybody connected to him uh, is part one. Um, that's a misnomer. The Ukrainian aid doesn't benefit disproportionately red states. I get that's where people think the military industry is. You might want to take a new look at that. The uh, But putting that aside, the uh, they have to indict him, I think. And I think they have to indict a bunch of high-ranking people next to him. And I think they have, uh, in order just to put, you know, they can't probably have him out and about. If he gets out and about, that will be a little odd um, if they if they don't indict. Um, his security while in custody will be mighty interesting. I mean, the issue is he's made publicly public statements that led people to believe things that were clearly not true. And he, the specifically FTX said they would never uh, use customer deposits in a way it's quite apparent they did. And so he was covering apparently his own losses. Uh, and was, this guy was not some special genius at all. He was just a scam artist is what it all evidence points to. And but they will try to use this for sure uh, to push through legislation that had originally stalled uh, now to try to control all of the crypto space as much as possible. And so that's almost a guarantee to have happen now. Uh, it may happen in the lame duck Congress. It may happen in the new Congress. I don't think they'll take the gamble that they wait for the new Congress. I think it will pass in the lame duck Congress. And they'll use the pretext of, pretext of this case. And then the question is, if it's a meaningful investigation, they'll implicate a lot of people. How do they cabinet? And I'm sure Biden Justice Department will definitely make sure to cabinet. Or maybe they just let, let, let him escape or just, you know, go slow on indicting him. You well, know, they, something they, like they, that. He is abroad. They have to find him. They have to indict him. They have to. Uh, they have to. Reportedly, he's under Bahamian custody that they're keep that he's not allowed to leave the island. But people said they saw his people tracked a plane tied to him that left uh, uh, yesterday. So it's unclear what the real status is. A lot of people. A lot of people predicting an Epstein. Robert, we're going to see. I mean, we're going. There is a shirt that says Epstein didn't kill himself. Like that wouldn't be the first time anyone would make merch with that. I'm trying to think. Uh, SBF. Um, Robert, we're going to bring it over to Rumble. Uh, I did notice there might be something wrong with the number watching on Rumble, but I don't care about that except to say, is anybody having problems watching on Rumble? Because it's going to be the segue into the election chicanery that is that is afoot, to quote a Stewie. So, buddy, mosey on over to Rumble. Oh, my internet looks like it's going to be slow again in a second. Mosey on over to Rumble. The link is pinned, and we're going to talk Carrie Lake the, 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 the what is it called the um post-mortem of the election now that we know a little bit more although they're still counting and there's nothing abnormal about that people you're the conspiracy theorist if you think that that's not right head over to rumble i'm going to wind it down here and uh see you there in three two one Booyakasha. now we'll know there's six thousand people watching on youtube there should be six thousand more watching on rumble in two seconds but i think i think the numbers are off uh, yeah, it keeps stopping. People say five times five on Rumble. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Pete7779 says, good. 
So we're live on Rumble. Robert, let's, let's right, talk. Yeah, well, here maybe we can commit some seditious libel, which uh, <laughs> is uh, astoundingly part of the uh, uh, a new a case went up in New Hampshire. A bunch of states have these laws. So years ago, Jim Garrison challenged it in Louisiana, and the U.S. Supreme Court said that most seditious libel laws, which is ta- is saying something about the government, and this goes all the way back to they passed laws saying if you say something bad about the government, we can call it seditious libel and, and put you in prison. Violates the First Amendment, but it wasn't fully adjudicated that it violated the First Amendment until Jim Garrison. And But in that decision, they said that you could still criminalize defamatory, actual defamatory libel. So if you've made a false statement of fact about a specifically identified individual with actual malice, then uh, it could still be a crime. A court uh, out of New Hampshire affirmed the New Hampshire's version of criminal misinformation. But uh, basically, if you say defamation, you can be put in jail by the government. But a judge wrote in his concurring opinion that in the modern era, that's really kind of problematic to give the government that degree of power to he's like civil defamation. Maybe that's outside the First Amendment, but criminal defamation shouldn't be because it has a high, high risk of selective prosecution being used by public officials to suppress and oppress dissident opinions. Uh, That case, I think, has an above average chance to get to the U.S. Supreme Court for the reasons articulated therein. Where is this just a civil case or a criminal case? It's part of a lot of, like the Alex Jones cases and other cases, the defamation context, the Supreme Court's going to have to clarify exactly what can it be? Is it just limited to civil? Can it also be criminal? Do we want the government to have that power in the first place? Isn't it a lot of Supreme Court justices in the past, including Justice Hugo Black and others, have said seditious libel should not be allowed, that the defamation can be a civil tort, but can't be a criminal case. Um, and so the question is, these vestigial is a bunch of states that still have these laws on the books that allow public officials to bring criminal charges against someone under the allegation they made a false statement of fact about a public official. And these are really problematic cases. The media celebrated it and they called it. You can go to jail now for spreading misinformation. That's how they put it. And it shows the mindset mentality of this. And hopefully the Supreme Court comes in and clarifies that. But we will see. In a, a comparable, to, go ahead. Oh, uh, I I just wanted to bring up one ch- one chat as because I don't want to forget uh, Matthew. It was good meeting you yesterday as well. This is the thing. I I meet people who uh, I was at a Starbucks. Someone said Viva, how's it going? And we shook hands. And I met Matt yesterday. And I'm always reluctant to say that I met somebody because y- you never know if anybody wants to even uh, it to be said that you met Viva on the street. Uh, Matt, it was great meeting you. And uh, I, if we go back. We, we blew a, a $15 on lettuce. In addition to the entry fee to the, the zoo, you have to buy a piece of lettuce for a buck. That's worth it. Uh, Matt, thank you very much and, and be well. And we'll hopefully we'll run into each other again soon. Robert, okay. Seditious libel is criminal lying about the government. Exactly. And it's amazing. You know, I kind of forgot that these statutes still existed, but a lot of them do. And the media loves them. And they're going to be selectively weaponized by prosecutors unless courts put a halt to it because it's very, very risky uh, to allow that to move forward in that in that path. The uh, speaking of defamation, Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports had sued a publication and some of its authors for writing what he called a smear piece meant to monetize their 
audience by putting a large part of it behind the paywall. Uh, but a court dismissed the case on the grounds that he did not sufficiently allege actual malice. And what actual malice, uh, I think it was kind of a high standard, but uh, in terms of how the court interpreted it, because you, you'll, you'll see contradictory constructions of actual malice all over the place. But actual malice is often misunderstood. People think of it to mean your motive is bad. What it, it was a poorly chosen phrase, frankly, by the U.S. Supreme Court. What it actually means is mental intent that you know your statements are false. That, that's or, what it's meant to be. Or, or you or have with, no legitimate reason to know that they're true, and you right. don't bother verifying. And this was from uh, New York Times versus Sullivan. But, I mean, Robert, Portnoy's lawsuit, the problem was, even in my mind, give me one second. Sorry, guys. Hello. Yeah, please. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Parents are, parents are, uh, someone's near to pick up a kid. Um, Portnoy, after he, you know, after the, the story broke, he came out and put out a 10 minute video saying everything that was wrong with the story, this and this and that. And the more he spoke, the more nuanced he made the story look. And if you're going to argue actual malice later on, I, you know, I, I've, I've never seen it. Well, where they've, where they've successfully or, or sufficiently alleged actual malice. Once you've gone into a 10 minute video to explain the nuances of why it's not accurate and why they could have done something better, you're sort of making it very difficult to cleanly allege later on actual malice they knew or ought to have known it was wrong when they wrote it when it took me 10 plus minutes in a Twitter video to explain why it was nuanced. Um, and I think this, like the Candace Owens case, like uh, the, the, the case we talked about a few weeks ago, the John Stossel case, I think increasingly courts are, uh, or litigants are going to have to almost do a poll or do a survey to show that, because like the court concluded that nobody would reasonably conclude that he was being accused of criminal sexual assault. And I was like, that seemed to me exactly what they were saying. So it's like, uh, and, and the legal standard is supposed to be what would a reasonable jury, could a reasonable jury conclude this? I think you're, as a litigant, I think you're almost going to, as a plaintiff, you're going to have to almost do a poll and show, you know, we, we have our focus group, we had, and someone that has credibility, but uh, that, hey, hey, we did a survey. And in fact, people did draw this inference because it, it kind of relates to part of a case uh, that I have before the Kentucky Supreme Court. We're petitioning the Kentucky Supreme Court on behalf of the Covington kids. The Kentucky Court of Appeals found that uh, social media is an exception to the publication rule. So in Kentucky, unlike most states, most states say you have personal jurisdiction over a defendant if uh, the Constitution allows you to. And the U.S. Supreme Court decided all the way back in 1984, Calder v. New Hampshire, another case that was parallel to it, that you can sue for defamation. You have personal jurisdiction over any defendant if their statement that was defamatory was published in that state, period. End of story. Kentucky is unique, and it says, no, you have to also have committed the tort in Kentucky. But historically, a, the, the tort of libel is committed wherever the statement is circulated and published. And here you had people who published the statement in Kentucky knowingly, published the statement to Kentuckians knowingly, about Kentuckians knowingly, to cause injury in Kentucky to Kentuckians. It's like that's the classic definition of a tort being committed in Kentucky. 
But the Kentucky Court of Appeals said, no, no, no. They, you have to prove they were physically located within the borders of Kentucky. It, 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 that makes no sense. And I want to clarify something for the Portnoy thing. I also think the actual malice standard, I, I would not mind seeing it done away with entirely. And I don't think that Portnoy's suit should have been dismissed on that basis that they didn't sufficiently allege actual malice. Anybody who read it knew exactly what they were getting at and came to the same conclusions. I just the way it's been implemented, the way defamation law has been implemented as relates to celebrities or uh, public figures, not celebrities, public figures, the and the absolute impossible nature of succeeding on a defamation claim, even beyond the motions to dismiss stage or the anti-slap stages. I've been flabbergasted as as relates to American law Uh, in in the in the Covington kids, Robert. I don't understand. I mean. It's 101. They're talking defamation occurs where it is read or heard, not where the person who uttered or published the statement was when they uttered or published the statement, but rather, sorry, where it was published afterwards, where it was heard and where the damage occurred. And I don't understand in a million years, Elizabeth Warren, Deborah Holland, I understand the sovereign immunity, even if I disagree with that. As relates to the other defendants in your case, I can't for the life of me understand it. But what's the, what's what's I'm spitting all over the place. It's crazy. What's the next step now? Because you're 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 petitioning uh, to over to, to review the, the the initial decision. Correct. Correct. So we're petitioning the Kentucky Supreme Court to take the case. They don't have to take the case, but uh, they should take the case. And if they do, uh, it's likely that they would reverse and reinstate because there's a lot of case law, including in Kentucky. That libel occurs there. The other, the other excuse by the Kentucky Court of Appeals was social media is different. So if you publish a book, that the libel gets spread in Kentucky. They acknowledge the Kentucky Court of Appeals that you can sue in Kentucky. If you publish a newsletter that gets published in Kentucky, then you can be sued in Kentucky. If you publish a newspaper, then you can be sued in Kentucky. But not if you publish on Facebook or Twitter. What? That's a li- there, there's no grounds for that at all. There's no constitutionally cognizable or legally a recognizable standard that says social media is exempt from all the rules of publication. What they're doing is they're saying they're giving a green light to libel people to make sure you, when you're going to lie about somebody, be in some place where it's really tough to sue physically. And now you have immunity from libel functionally, and you cannot even recover in your own state where the injury occurred, where the publication occurred, where the people heard it, where the people were targeted. Because the key here is they knew they were targeting Kentuckians. They were, and they were communicating to Kentuckians, saying, do something bad to these kids uh, in Kentucky. If that's not a tort in Kentucky, what is? So it, it, was a, it, it showed, I think, I believe, the political prejudice of the Kentucky Court of Appeals doesn't want Democrats, because these are all Democrats, uh, held accountable. Uh, for their bad acts towards the kids in in Covington. Shows the wild disparity between that and the crazy rules set up against Alex Jones in both the Texas and Connecticut cases. It shows you how blatantly, overtly partisan and political the courts are becoming in case after case after case, showing contradictory standards uh, when it involves the same legal issue. Um, Now, one place where the courts did actually enforce the law, thankfully, is that loser Venman uh, and his ludicrous Ku Klux Klan Act lawsuit against President Trump and Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump Jr. were was completely dismissed this past week. Uh, Venman had brought suit claiming that any public statement made about him was an effort to intimidate him as a witness and thus was a 
Ku Klux was equal to the Ku Klux Klan trying to prevent people from voting by lynching people or burning crosses in their front yard. That's what Vindman said was a comparison. As the federal court noted, even if defamation is a predicate act for a Ku Klux Klan Act violation, which, by the way, is kind of fascinating to me. I was like, well, that's going to dramatically expand the liability under that law. The, the court noted that trying to convert every political roughhousing fight of language into a Ku Klux Klan violation would lead to so many lawsuits, no court would ever be able to, no judicial system would ever be able to adjudicate them all. And said that you have a lawful right to contest the credibility of someone in the political arena, including a witness against you in any kind of proceeding. Glad to see them finally say that because that was the great concern is they were going to try to weaponize the legal process so that you as a lawyer or advocate could not even question the credibility of a witness in the court of public opinion in the case that's all about the court of public opinion. Uh, but it was nice. He lost all the way across the board, charges, all his claims dismissed against all parties, and it couldn't happen better to a bigger loser. <laughs> um, yeah, that's I, I, I was following that one less with less interest than I, I still can't get over the Covington case. Uh, at, at the end of the day, even if the, the, the Supreme Court of Kentucky says, OK, we're sending it back. Now you got to basically just go back and start not from scratch, but start from the beginning again. Yeah, that's the nature it's, of it's, it. It's very frustrating, Robert. Uh, but now, what, what, I, we could have gotten to this seditious defamation. We could have segued into this from the seditious, seditious defamation case. But the Oath Keepers are on trial, Robert. And we're finding out that this looks a lot like a Whitmer situation where how many informants are they going to have to foil a plot before it becomes the informants or the FBI orchestrating the plot? Uh, Rhodes, I have not been following the trial as thoroughly as I'd, I'd like to, but I, I know what's going on. But the bottom line now is we're finding out how much how much FBI involvement in this seditious conspiracy, uh, how many informants and how much. I mean, I mean, they waited to the last minute to disclose it. The feds had been sitting on it and hiding it. That should be grounds to dismiss a case if the judges do their job. But they don't in these cases, sadly. They don't in general when it comes to the government, sadly. Um, the But what they're disclosing is there are high ranking informants all over the place. And so increasingly, including high ranking positions. Um, and so what you're seeing is that this appears more and more what my initial original hush hush was about, which went through the template, you know, the templates of a false flag. Again, all those hush hushes you can find at vivabarneslaw.locals.com. We already have 64 episodes up and more coming. Um, the uh, what was that this everything about this smacked of uh, a version of an inside job that there were people that you know, the feds have a problem. either. All these informants and infiltrators weren't provoking it and uh, and weren't doing any of that. Okay, they were just there to report on it. Then why weren't you prepared and why did you tell people to stand down on on January 6th? Because the seventh floor of the FBI was recommending no National Guard presence, was recommending a bunch of things like that. So uh, either they lied about what they knew or they were part of a deliberate, complicit conspiracy to undermine the election challenge by getting people to do something dumb on January 6th. And the uh, unusual inadequacy of Capitol Police, the unusual provocative actions of uh, aspects of Capitol Police in attacking the protesters, the, uh, the fact that walls weren't in the right place, people weren't directed to the right place, people got stuck in a certain place. 
the you know summary execution of some of the protesters that was then blamed on the protesters themselves. Uh, the then the you know mass detention and imprisonment of many of them for months on end. One just got out on bail twenty months later, uh, which is just nuts. I mean that's a due process viol- walking talking due process violation. An innocent man in prison for twenty months. Uh, just based on accusation, had not supposed to happen in America under our bail standards. And so what what the trial is revealing is that uh, at it, it was much worse, much broader, much deeper, much more pervasive than the feds have ever admitted, that there were informants and infiltrators all over the place, including in high-ranking positions like vice presidents and things of that nature. Um, so the, uh, it not, they weren't just hangers on who showed up at the last minute who were listening in, they were top ranking people making decisions that led to the sequence of events that occurred on January 6th. For, for, for people who don't understand this, I mean, how do they go after the lawyers in this? I'm trying to pull up an article just to, to understand how they, how they go after the lawyer uh, above and beyond everything else. Like if, if this sounds and feels like an all out assault where FBI comes in, uh, infiltrates. They had informants for months in there. Like with the Whitmer, high level up, orchestrating, organizing, training, financing. They go in, plant the idea, antagonize the idea, sort of water the idea, um, and then say, look, we we got him to say something stupid. Let's go after him. He was going to do it, but for our involvement or notwithstanding our involvement. But how do they go after the lawyer, if you're able to answer that? I mean, they're just accusing him all of being co-conspirators. And so the uh, that is uh, how they're how they're getting it. And, and they can only allege that because they were spying on communications that they should have had reason to believe are attorney client communications. So it's just one breach of constitutional standards after another. And it's similar to and we'll get up and we'll get to the elections in just a bit for those asking about it. The uh, it's similar to what happened in aspects of the elections. But it's we're seeing, you know, political overt political weaponization of the legal process to terrorize people who ask fundamental questions, whether it's greenlighting criminal seditious libel laws or it's the targeting harassment of this kind of activity here. And it corresponds to what's one of the big Supreme Court issues. Supreme Court did issue an administrative stay this week of Congress's ability to seize Trump's taxes. And the the what the Supreme Court said in the Mazars decision, was, because this is, a, by the way, for those people out there, Congress has never before in history subpoenaed the president's tax records for years outside of his presidency. They have never before subpoenaed the business tax records. Never has happened. These are unparalleled, unprecedented actions. When they did it, the chair, the committee chairman who did it and the speaker Pelosi, who greenlit it, both said that their goal and their purpose was to disclose Trump's tax information to the world, to the public. That's what they said. Then when they it was time to issue the subpoena, they realized, oh, that kind of sounds bad. So we'll just put a cover page and say, we're doing this because we want to look into the audit process. Yeah, we want to make sure they audit. For a legitimate legislative process, they want to they want to revisit presidential audits. It's, it's like it's only targeted for Trump. What do they call it? Is that a is that a close to a bill of attainder? Just drafting a law for one specific person. It, yeah. Okay. They've they've got their valid legislative purpose, and they say let's subpoena the president outside of his time as office. And what the D.C. Circuit did is say we can't look past what they claimed that what that they are allowed to give pretextual reasons, and that's it, and that we're bound by. 
And so the petition of the U.S. Supreme Court is saying this is ludicrous. Uh, under this standard, there's no meaningful review anymore. There's no judicial review anymore. You can, uh, as long as you're not a complete idiot and don't put an illegal reason on your paperwork, <laughs> then now you can uh, steal, you can grab whatever you want. And their point is the standard under Mazars, the standard under prior cases, was there has to be meaningful judicial review of the entire record. And that evaluating purpose is not limited to self-serving definitions of what that purpose is in the formalized legislative introduction. And there, the district court itself acknowledged that all the evidence showed the real purpose was, in fact, the pretext to, to get Trump's personal information and disclose it. Their second point was, under Mazars, the subpoena has to be limited in scope, narrowly tailored, if you will, in scope to the purpose. And the point was, if the purpose is, let's look at the audit protocols, then that doesn't allow you to look at business returns that are not subject to the audit protocols. It does not allow you to look at Trump's personal returns that are not subject to the audit protocols. And it doesn't recommend only looking at Trump's records rather than, say, Biden family records. And so it violates that part of the Massar's decision, again, just issued two years ago by the same U.S. Supreme Court. And so what it, uh, uh, the, the Office of Legal Counsel under the Biden administration completely flip-flopped on their interpretation. The Justice Department did the same. It shows you how overtly and openly political these are. But in the, in the process, by the way, they're damaging the OLC. They're damaging the DOJ because these have been considered persuasive interpretations of the law precisely because courts pretended that they weren't partisan and political. Mm -hmm. Now that, that can be put to rest. Clearly, these are just partisan hacks who politically make up things as they go along. This is not a third-party objective interpretation that is, should have any persuasive quality or value or effect whatsoever. But I think the U.S. Supreme Court did issue the stay, administrative stay. I think they'll continue to. I think they will take up the case because this cannot be the standard for congressional subpoenas. And they need to limit this misuse and abuse of congressional subpoena power. Well, Robert, on the subject of misuse of power and um, uh, stay, staying, I don't know, bad policy. It's, it, it, I, people are saying, and Jonathan Turley is, is observing that Biden is suffering loss after loss after loss before the court. The most recent big one, I guess, I think, was it on our list? The Texas Court of Appeal um, staying the, uh, re re the, the student loan forgiveness program, um, which was, it's, I haven't read the actual decision, read a bunch of stuff on it. Uh, what I'm shocked is that they got past standing. And I, I have been not uh, in its, well, in its integrality. I don't know if the judge adjudicated on the standing or just as a matter of fact, recognized the standing, but the two plaintiffs, which are backed by conservative, uh, entities or activist companies or activist entities, um, alleged standing in that one of them said, I have a student loan, but it's not backed by the federal, uh, government. So I don't benefit from this forgiveness. And the other one said, I have a loan, but it's not, not a Pell grant. And so I, I, I too have been left out of the process and I've been left out of the process precisely because there was no process. It was executive order, not a legislative, um, uh, a legislative process through which there's uh, administrative, administrative procedures that need to be followed, uh, public debate, commentary, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, the court suspended it and basically said absolute overreach of order is unlawful and we're putting a pause on it. Uh, what do you what, what do you think of the fact that they got past standing in the first place? I think that will be the main issue as it gets goes through, because initially the standing predicate was uh, people that 
uh, benefited from other programs, but would now be punished by this program because it would make their forgiveness taxable where it wasn't taxable under another program. But then uh, what the Biden administration was doing was it kept shrinking the program to limit people who could sue. And so uh, the question is whether this court's interpretation that that still provided standing. My own view of standing, of course, complete garbage is a doctrine. It's invented. It's made up. This is clearly a case or controversy within the meaning of the Constitution. That should be it. None of this standing crap. But that's not where our courts are, unfortunately. And so consequently, that will be the main issue on appeal. There was never any doubt that he didn't have authority to do this. This was not an emergency pandemic related measure. It was a let me see how many votes I can buy by uh, November 8th. Um, that, that's what it was. Uh, so that it didn't pass APA standards or anything else. Uh, but the question of whether or not they, are in fact, were injured by the policy, given the Biden administration was constantly limiting standing by who it was taking it away from, uh, will be a question on appeal. So we'll see how. But the Biden administration may just back down, use this as a pretext to not go forward because they got what they wanted. It's past Election Day now. Well, so and, you know, even Nancy Pelosi knew that it was potentially unlawful in the first place. But past election over that raises the question. Loki in the chat says, uh, you know, overturned the day after the election. It's it's a Trump appointed judge who overturned it. If one were to impute intentions to this, one could say if the Trump judge overturned it before the election, even more of an impetus to get the young Democrat vote out. And so maybe it was helpful even to wait until after the election to throw it out. Uh, but then some are going to say, well, Biden already got, he bought his votes with this promise anyhow. So it's tossed afterwards. Ha, if this were to be a scandalous you know, uh, way of overturning it, why do it after the election and not before? Or uh, before, oh, after I, I don't think before? The, I don't think the court was motivated by the timing, but whether the Biden administration keeps the policy will clearly be, is clearly going to be motivated by the timing. Mm-hmm. So that, that will be what we see. But the Biden administration did have another loss in a case brought by Stephen Miller and the American First Legal Center, which is very different than a bunch of other America First think tanks in D.C. They're actually fake. But the America First Legal folks uh, run by Stephen Miller have brought a lot of good cases. They brought a suit on behalf of several physicians because the Biden administration was trying to use the decision uh, last year, the, 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 the uh, Bostock decision in the Title VII context, which said that can actually protect gender identity in certain circumstances, and say it also applied now in Title IX to educational institutions, and it applied applied everywhere. So they were telling doctors they have to provide gender transition, hormone therapy, and things of this nature, or they would be subject to discrimination allegations uh, under the various federal laws. And almost every federal, uh, almost every doctor gets federal funds one way or another because of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, not to mention grant aid. So uh, these doctors sued and said, this uh, is a misapplication of the Supreme Court's decision, that those are two different laws serving two different purposes, and that it violated the Administrative Procedures Act because they made an unreasonable and arbitrary and capricious interpretation of the law that the court should set aside. The court found they have standing because they're at risk of having to change how they approach their medical treatment based on the law or risk being uh, charged with discrimination claims. And what the point was is the language is in the Title IX is on the basis of sex as opposed to because of sex, 
which for at least Gorsuch, who wrote the was the fifth vote on the Bostic decision, was a very big that was very important to him. He pointed out this doesn't necessarily apply to anywhere outside of Title VII. Title VII, Congress chose this language, and here's why I think it means this. But and the best evidence that Title IX is not Title VII is Title IX has a specifically exempt provision that says Title IX cannot be used to prohibit separate facilities for men and women. The Biden administration wasn't just using this to try to force gender hormone therapy and controversial medical treatments on medical doctors under claims of discrimination if they don't. They were also clearly intending to use this to force women at every level of uh, uh, school scholastic competition or uh, within the public school arena and even beyond that, private schools too, because they're part of the NCAA, basically could have forced women to accept men competing in their sports. And so the court came in and said, this does violate the APA. They do have standing, identified some of the problems and pointed out on the basis of sex cannot mean the same thing as because of sex under the law, because Title IX has a specifically exempt provision that says to treat women and men differently in a range of circumstances uh, that would not be permitted in the employment context. And so uh, the Biden administration lost another big one in that case. We'll see how it goes up, but uh, good work by the American First Legal folks, uh, Stephen Miller, et cetera. What, what, what do we segue into, Robert? Let's actually, uh, interesting lawsuit. One that I didn't think I would find quite as interesting as, as, uh, as I did. Uh, they call it the ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, Robert, which is currently before the Supreme Court as to whether or not the ICWA law, uh, I think it was enacted in 1998, which provides specific um, procedures for the adoption of uh, do we say in the States, do you say indigenous or native? Indian. Indian. I, I think that's in Can- that's still the law in Canada, but I think that the term has become, and we'll call it, we'll, I mean, we'll call it by the politically law. Politically people will say native American, but the term in law is still Indian because so, everything is Indian because Indian tribes, et cetera, Indian child welfare act, Indian this. So it's all Indian. Okay. And then now this, the question is whether or not specific rules as relates to the adoption of Indian children, uh, which prioritize, Remaining within the family, within remaining within the community, to the exclusion of uh, non-Indian uh, potential adopters. The, the the case that I think brought this to the Supreme Court was a Caucasian non-Indian couple wanted to adopt a baby, baby O, and uh, went through some serious hardship to to try to get the baby adopted. Ultimately, they adopted it, but they filed suit alleging that they suffered as a result of this law. This law is discriminatory because it's a race-based. Uh, discrimination that should not be tolerated. I was listening to a number of interviews and podcasts on this law, and it's it's just funny. Politics ruins everything. This is being framed as right-wing conservatives trying to destroy indigenous culture, indigenous, uh, indigenous rights, where the idea behind the objection to this law is that it prioritizes or creates special adoption rules based on one's status as an Indian. One of the situations where I can absolutely understand both sides, and I'm sort of torn as to what the right measure is, but the flip side of the argument is that this is not race-based. This is effectively citizen-based, status-based. Being Indian in the States, like in Canada, it's not just a race, not just a lineage. It's a status under the law as much as citizenship is. And so they've created a law that treats Indians under the law, the way they're defined under the law, as basically being sovereign to American law, same thing with Canadian law. Uh, and so the argument is, do we strike down ICWA 
or do we not strike down ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, and the fear is that if you strike down this law that relates to the governance of Indians as a sovereign entity within America, within Canada, it'll lead to the striking down of a bunch of other protective measures, et cetera, et cetera. How do you think it's going to go? And what's your take on the arguments for and against? So, I mean, I think, I mean, I know Gorsuch is very uh, sympathetic with Indian tribal recognitions and rights. Uh, My old law professor, Richard Monette, was a big supporter of what he called Indian federalism, which is that basically you treat Indian tribes equal to states and think of them in the same frame and use treaties as the negotiating power between the state and federal governments and Indian tribes. Uh, I think the allegation that it's discriminatory is is not applicable in this context. Indian tribes are a separate sovereign organization recognized by our treaties as such and can be uh, a leg- and Congress can legislate as to them in a manner without violating uh, rules about racial discrimination in other contexts where it might be applicable. And so I understand. I mean, the, the backstory is that this these laws happened because there was a lot of effort of forced acculturation to, to remove Indians from Indian tribal members from their tribe to uh, Western culture, American culture, in ways that was meant to undermine uh, uh, the tribal culture. And that's where the law originates. Now, the question is, in the modern age, does it, the law still make sense? In the sense that the law, uh, increasingly you have people like this couple who are just wanting to adopt kids, and have to go through ridiculous hurdles that they don't understand uh, because they relate to a past time period to which it's not really applicable, which is, you know, favoring first an Indian tribe's relatives and or some other Indian tribe to raise the kid. And uh, but that, in my view, is an argument for legislative reform, not judicial revision of the law on the grounds of discrimination because that would invalid. I think it's just conceptually wrong. Indian tribes are separate and different. They're not subject to that law in the first place. Uh, and second, and secondly, it would it would raise all kinds of collateral issues that would create too many uh, procedural and legal headaches for the relationships between tribes, states, and the federal government. The they may be right about the solution that we that this should be revisited this law, but that's a legislative reform issue, not a Supreme Court adjudication issue. All right. Very interesting. Um, let's get a, a, a small one before we get into the big stuff of the election and, and, and what where we're at now. Um, I, whenever you send me something, I presume I have to, I take for granted there's a, a, a more important underlying reason than I am initially able to decipher. Phoebe Bridges defamation case against a music producer. Forget what his name is, um, where sh- a number of people alleged that this famous music producer. Uh, had been engaged in violence of a sexual nature, et cetera, et cetera. Phoebe Bridges, uh, among other artists, uh, shared some stories on Instagram supporting people who made these allegations, was sued for defamation, and succeeded on an anti-slap preliminary dismissal of the case. The judge came to the conclusion that it, you know, public interest and um, protected speech and therefore should be dismissed on the anti-slap stage what is uh, any greater depth of relevance to that uh, particular situation, Robert? Well, it happens to parallel uh, part of the Mike Covington case, which is there's one part they didn't dismiss on personal jurisdiction grounds because it was a Democratic candidate for the governor of Kentucky uh, who made the statements in Kentucky undisputably at the time. And that was they claimed that even that basically trying to lead a social media lynch mob to uh, go after these kids 
could not be actionable defamation because it was just subjective opinion. And the problem with that is subjective opinion is not unprotected uh, when it is in a position uh, that it says uh, when it doesn't imply facts. When you do imply facts, then it's defamation like anything else. So that's where years ago the U.S. Supreme Court said somebody who accused somebody of perjury, he could be sued for libel. Clearly part of his statement was an opinion statement, personal opinion. But it was one that applied a specific factual statement that this other individual had lied while under oath. And that's very different uh, than uh, the other the situation where you fully disclose the underlying facts and it's truly protected opinion. And so both of those cases relate to courts continue to struggle with knowing the difference between truly subjective opinion that does not imply and cannot be construed by a reasonable jury as implying any fact and those that do. Similar to the Portnoy case. I think they got wrong that there was clearly an implied statement of specific fact accusing of criminal activity uh, that at least a reasonable jury could determine. And that that's supposed, that should be a jury determination, not a judicial determination. Very interesting. And everybody in the chat, don't worry. It says one watching now for me as well. The real-time viewer count doesn't make a difference. We know that the crowd is out there. People are absorbing this in real time by the, I suspect, well in the tens of thousands. But Robert, okay. On the subject of defamation. Oh, gosh. And it's going to be the segue into the election updates because people want to know how the hell are things still undecided in Arizona? And what the hell happened with this election? Uh, before we get there, true the vote. They have been released from jail. The, the, a, a judge of the court of or the court of appeals overturned the lower court decision. Said it didn't make any sense in law. The rest of the judge's order, whatever it was, I think it was like they pay some nominal amount of damages per day of their default. Release them from jail. What you uh, what what I was reading that you sent was, I believe their 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 motion, their memorandum to to have it overturned it was overturned they're out and they've been talking about it and it would be great to get them on for a sidebar Robert, if we can but set that aside uh judge let him out said makes no sense at the same time robert they dropped the charges against eugene Yu, uh the ceo of connect and i went through the criminal complaint earlier this week if they dropped it all of a sudden i don't know how they alleged what they alleged in the criminal complaint only to drop it later on uh, but tell us what you think of what's going on in that. And um, the, there will be no writing of that wrong in terms of them having been locked up for a week, released the day after or the day of the November midterms. Um, but share your thoughts on what you think of this Judge Hoyt, Court of Appeal, and how on earth they dropped the charges against uh, the CEO of Connect, Eugene Yu. You know, I mean, put this way, if this was the State Department watching this case, like if in another country, let's say Russia and Putin, all of this would be on blast and it will all be seen as overtly, openly political to manipulate the outcome of the elections. You take the two people who uh, were behind the biggest film, the information behind the biggest film for how the 2020 election was fornicated. Um, and, and by the way, the people that were uh, at uh, that were responsible for that Time magazine piece in 2020 that talked about the fortification took credit for 2022. Uh, just a few days ago. They said, see, we did it again. This is great work. Uh, this is who these people are. So you have people saying, hey, there's problems with our mass mail-in voting system that uh, violate the law in a bunch of states. And those people are conveniently locked up 
while they they sort of freeze the case, potential criminal case against the man who did have servers undisputably now in China, including uh, private voter information of Americans there, as far as I can tell from the available information. And the Court of Appeals did the right thing, unanimously said there's no basis to detain these people. They shall be released forthwith. Because if you read the petition for writ of mandamus brought by their lawyers, I mean, there was no grounds to lock her up at all. I mean, it was just patently frivolous. The judge was a loon, uh, is a Trump hater, apparently, even though he's a Reagan appointee, he's a Trump hater, uh, by some of his statements and comments. And it's all part of this suppression of, of people challenging the integrity of the election, which if you have high integrity in elections, you welcome court contests, you welcome trials, you welcome evidentiary hearings, you don't hide them like our judges have been doing, and you don't lie about them like our media has been doing. That's a sign that you know there's not election integrity, that there's not election transparency. And that's probably a good bridge into some of the election issues. The 2022 election results do uh, contradict every economic model that's out there, contradict every historical parallel precedent that's out there, contradict the exit polls on election night itself from the media itself, and uh, contradict uh, uh, almost every historical past comparable election. And if this election was being done overseas, if if this was a Russian election, the State Department would be denouncing it on a daily basis because you have results that contradict exit polls. That's one of the signs they take. Second, you have methods of counting the ballot with delay after delay after delay in key place after key place after key place that, as Tucker Carlson mentions, keeps magically resulting in one party winning. Over 80% of the time, when there's a delay of 24 hours or more, uh, the election results go to the Democrat. That looks really bad. How is it that these really tight elections keep magically swinging in one direction the longer you can delay the counting of the votes. The entire world can count ballots in a day. Brazil had their election results in three hours. France had their election results in four hours. Brexit had their election results in a few hours. How can the entire globe count their votes within a day, uh, usually the same day, within a few hours, as was done in Florida, as was done in Texas, but they just can't in California. They just can't in Nevada. They just can't in Arizona. They just can't in key state after key state after key state. And then it just magically, Democrats keep coming out ahead over and over and over and over. We know the people running these elections are Democrats overwhelmingly uh, from their past or are anti, even if they're Republican, they're anti these group of Republican candidates. And it looks horrible. Like in Nevada, You have uh, in Washoe County, all of a sudden the cameras go down so you can't see what's happening. And when it comes out, it's another Vegas style magic act. Look at all the new Democratic ballots we found. Isn't that incredible? And then you have frauds like John Ralston, who says that anybody that questions an election is evil and terrible. When he himself promoted Russia collusion and his pal, Harry Reid, one of the most corrupt politicians he helped cover for for decades because John Ralston is a corrupt political hack who's a fraud saying anybody who questions these elections is terrible and evil. Yes, it takes day after day after day. And the ballots kept coming in. As Nate Cohn of the New York Times called it, the the big key of this election was the post-election day vote. How is there a post-election day vote? 
It's because these ballots just keep coming in, coming in, coming in. And then you have the unions who get to cure the ballots. This means if your signature didn't match, because maybe it wasn't you who did the vote, you get a chance to vote again after election day. People can look all around the world. They will not find an example of another country in the entire globe that does elections like this. Nobody has mass mail-in voting. Nobody in the entire globe does this. Why? Well, for that, you can read the international legal standards for elections. I recommended uh, you can read the uh, Election Integrity Commission. You can read the United States Election Assistance Commission. You can read Jimmy Carter and James Baker's report from 0405. You can read the statements of judge after judge after judge. You can read the statements of the Democratic Party in Georgia in 2009. What did they all agree on? Mass mail-in, or you can read the New York Times, August 2012. Mass mail-in balloting equals too much opportunity for fraud. That's what the New York Times said. That's what leading election scholars said. That's what the Election Integrity Blue Ribbon Commission said. That's what the United States uh, Election Assistance Commission said. That's what Jimmy Carter said. That's what the Democratic Party said. We would not allow these election standards to exist anywhere else in the world and recognize the election. And yet we're deciding the United States Senate based on those standards. We're deciding the United States House based on those standards. We're deciding governorships based on those standards. It is an embarrassment. America is no longer the leader of election integrity. It is the seller of election integrity. Uh, here, listen and listen to this, Robert. I saw this yesterday when I was thousand of these that are actually election day votes in person, and then the rest of the seventy-five thousand are late earlys dropped off on election day. We do not know where these are from. These could be from anywhere in the county, all 75,000. This is not picked out of a certain area. These are not pulled by precinct. Uh, And so then just give us the remaining universe and when we should expect those. Yes. So we're now left with about 275,000 ballots to count. And the lion's share, the overwhelming majority of these remaining votes are early ballots that were dropped off on election day. And when do you think we'll get the results from those remaining uncounted ballots? Good question. We will continue in the rhythm that we've now established over the past few days. I would anticipate, again, one uh, ballot drop or, you know, one vote update per day in the evening, probably somewhere in this range that we've been somewhere around 60 to 80,000 a day, which would then make us uh, reach completion very early next week. Very early next Robert, make it, make it, make, hold on. Stop, stop, stop. Make it make sense, Robert. First of all, this is Bill Gates, not the Bill Gates, but the Maricopa County. What's his Yeah, board of the, this is, this is the Bill Gates in Maricopa County saying that they, they don't know where the ballots are coming from. And, I, and at first I thought he meant at this time, I can't tell you where they're coming from. They have lit. It sounds like he doesn't have an idea as to the chain of custody of these 75,000 ballots. They're Tuesday to Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, five days out counting 60,000 ballots a day. We're going to give up. What the hell is going on, Robert? The, I mean, the logical inference, if this was any place else in the world, and you have unusual vote counting delays, those unusual vote counting delays overwhelmingly favor one side, 
the conclusion would be that is an unreliable, untrustworthy election result. That would be our standards imposed on the rest of the world. So the, there's going to be more and more Americans that uh, have serious doubts about the integrity of American elections um, because of the ahistorical, uh, highly unusual nature of how this election was conducted. And, and it's happened all over the place. It's happened in house races in Washington, house races in New York, house races in other places where there have been unusual, unexplained delays that magically always result in Democrats winning. Again and again and again and again and again and again. I like again about an 80% or so clip. So the people's assumptions are going to be that that's happening because they're finding enough ballots for the Democrat to win. That I mean, that that's the logical inference that many people are going to. It's the one we would bring if another country did this. If Putin did this, CNN would be on nonstop about how he stole the election. So are we supposed to apply different standards to ourselves than we apply to people overseas in other countries and other nations? So it is an embarrassment. Now, what can be done about it? The Justice Department could have brought civil rights actions for the fact that you had in Milwaukee people arrested, election officials for trying to falsify absentee ballots. Uh, in Arizona, uh, a whole bunch of Republicans denied access to being able to vote because the machines magically didn't work suddenly uh, in Republican areas. But we're seeing none of that. That the so I mean, according to the polling that I think has now been published, so I can talk about it. Richard Barris did. Uh, the people that reported problems on election day were about like a three to one margin were Republicans, uh, and that's because it was mostly Republicans who were voting on election day. But it also shows the systemic problem and the scale of that problem. Democrats didn't have any problem voting. Republicans did. Where is the Biden Justice Department? Well, they wanted this result, so that's why it's not intervening. So it's very hard to force them to do their job. It's hard to sue in federal court and get remedy in a meaningful way that could reverse the election outcome. So the only means to contest an election in these contests is to file what's known as an election contest. Those laws exist in Nevada. Those laws exist in Arizona. Those laws exist in Georgia. I put up an example of one that I drafted in 2020 for uh, Trump, the Trump campaign and put it up at vivabarneslaw.locals.com so people can see it. Uh, my view is that there is a robust right to bring such an election contest in Nevada and Arizona because I don't believe the signatures will match on enough ballots that don't overcome the margin of victory, given how tiny that margin of victory is in Nevada and, uh, and, and, is, and is likely to be if Blake Masters uh, it doesn't overcome it in the late-counted ballots, yet-to-be-counted ballots in Arizona. Um, I don't know whether any of, but the, the issue is it, people have been blacklisted by the media so aggressively uh, of, of being called election deniers. And there's such a, and then there's such weaponization against them in the legal arena uh, that the, uh, that it creates this fear, this censor and shame fear uh, to silence people uh, to not assert their legal rights and remedies. Uh, because if a candidate doesn't bring it, other people can also bring it. But if a candidate doesn't bring it, it is extremely unlikely a court's going to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Sadly, if the courts wanted to instill confidence in America's elections, they shouldn't do what that federal judge did to the true the vote folks and lock up people exposing problems. They should welcome an open, transparent legal process. Let's have the signature matches checked. Hire the Democrats' own signature match consultant because it was the Democrats' own signature match expert who said enough signatures didn't match in Arizona 
that far exceeded the margin of victory in 2020. And then the court had to run and hide and pretend it didn't hear that and pretend it didn't matter. Signature matches, the only, again, mass mail-in balloting, mass absentee balloting is unheard of in American history. It's un, it, it has no precedent anywhere else in the globe. It's now produced a second straight set of election results that nobody can explain. Um, and the consequent that at least no economic model that can explain, no presidential job approval model can explain, no historical model can explain, no, nothing can, can explain uh, beyond a bunch of ballots came in that typically would never have come in. And the question is, are they all on the up and up? And I suspect they're not. I suspect at a minimum, they don't meet signature match standards. We know in 2020, people voted in Arizona who said, no, I didn't vote. Their vote came in by mail. They said, I live in Tennessee and I voted in Tennessee. That was never meaningfully investigated by the authorities in Arizona. The the, uh, person running on the Democratic ticket for governor is the secretary of state uh, who runs elections. So you have a self-serving interest and she didn't recuse herself at all. No court required it. Because in Arizona, there are a lot of John McCain-style judges on the Republican side, Democrats on the other side. And consequently, they don't, they don't enforce the law in Arizona. Because what they want everyone to do is to stick their head in the sand and pretend this election was on the up and up. When more millions and millions and millions of Americans believe it was anything but. Losing confidence in, your pow- in the power of your vote is not the way to continue to build a constitutional democracy. But it's going to wake some judges are going to have to wake up to that uh, for that to become a uh, functional reality. I, I, I asked you before this all went down, where even the New York Times was predicting a loss of both the House and the Senate. I said, what results would have to happen for people to say, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever? And I think your answer exactly, is only, yeah, exactly. We're seeing, what it. Was we're seeing it in live time. Yeah, I mean, it, again, I mean, as an example, in the average district, uh, where there wasn't Democratic targeting and there wasn't mass mail-in voting opportunity. Uh, Republicans outperformed. There was about a double-digit swing from 2020. Republicans outperformed their 2020 numbers by an average of eight or more points, on often, often by 10 points. In congressional districts and states where there's mass mail-in voting and Democratic mass targeting, we're seeing something totally opposite. We're seeing the repeat of the 2020 results. It's like, again, we have never seen this in American political history. Unheard of. There's no precedent for it. So there's no question that mail-in voting is why. The only question is, is that mail-in voting representing of an honest vote, just Democrats organize better? Or is it the result of fraudulent votes? Jimmy Baker said it would probably be part of fraud, that fraud would explain it if the margins were tight. Jimmy Carter said that if the margins are tight, fraud is probably the explanation. Federal judges in more than a dozen decisions over the past 50 years said absentee balloting is where all the fraud occurs. The Democratic Party in 2009 in Georgia said absentee balloting is where all the fraud occurs. The, our own election standards would never allow this form of voting, vote counting or voting anywhere else in the world and call it an election you can have confidence in. So why should we? Why should Americans? Americans shouldn't. But it will be up to people like Adam Laxalt, people like Blake Masters and others. Uh, to bring the election contest to try to get this issue finally smoked out and vetted. This is a problem. It can't keep happening over and over again, or Americans will lose confidence that their vote has power and that our elections have integrity. TJ MACD says, Viva, what do you expect? Fetterman and DeLuca won. Uh, that tells you the state of the elections. Uh, here, here to, to that comment, I have no problem actually believing that, that Fetterman 
legitimately wonder. I can see that sort of, on the one hand, being something of a meme almost, but also on the other hand, Cernovich put out a tweet that says, you know, he's, he's been talking to Fetterman voters and they view strokes like heart attacks. Like it doesn't compromise your mental ability. It's not a, it's not a, a handicap. And so they had no problem voting for him over, over Dr. Oz. I could have, I could envision easily people saying, I'm voting for Fetterman. I feel bad for him. He's a, it's an inspiring story, et cetera, et cetera. Where I have very big issues is watching what's going on in Arizona, watching what's going on in Nevada, where you have blackouts, where it takes six days to count the vote, and they're still not done. You have the, the Bill Gates saying, yeah, we're going to count 60,000 votes a day. And when, when we're done, we're done. It makes no sense. Um, but Robert, what's the I mean, California is still voting. They'll be, I mean, they'll be counting ballots and receiving ballots for weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, like when Mark Robert's prediction is the most accurate and his prediction was Democrats would openly steal it. Then it, and that, and the, and his predictions are the ones disproportionately coming true. Who has the better explanation for the sequence of events? Um, well, I mean, I mean it, 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 it's, it's an interesting thing. What you say is, okay, mail-in balloting is the issue. The question is, is it making it easier for lazy Democrats to vote? Now they can vote in their pajamas and, they, and democracy is truly being democratized or is it chicanery a la 2,000 mules and, and more? And the other problem with mail-in voting is why do we have a secret ballot in America anymore? Right? Mail-in voting is not secret. There's no guarantee it's secret. We used to have rules that said, and by the way, why did New York swing massively Republican? New York doesn't allow mass mail-in balloting. The, the, the people rejected it, interestingly enough. That's why. You, there's limits on who can do an absentee ballot. Historically, only a small group of people could do mail-in voting in America. Uh, and usually there were standards in place. Like somebody had to be a witness and say, I reviewed this, and they were they filled it out in secret. Nobody saw it. I didn't see anybody buy it. I didn't see anybody coerce it, anybody blackmail it, et cetera, and then hand deliver it in such a way that there's chain of custody. Here, we have no idea whether somebody else filled out the ballot for somebody. We have no idea whether somebody blackmailed them, extorted them, coerced them, or bought pay, their ballot. Paid, yeah, just pay them. Pay them. And, and, and the difference is they can see it, right? Like, it's one thing if I pay you 50 bucks and say, here's the ticket. Go vote for these group of people. I have no idea whether you actually do it when you get in there. Because it's secret. That's the whole point of the secret ballot was to stop this kind of activity from occurring. Mass mail-in balloting erases that. You have no more safeguards anymore at all. You can go buy as many ballots as you want, blackmail as many people as you want, extort, coerce as much people as you want. And it's highly unlikely to ever be become public knowledge uh, because of where it occurs and how it occurs. I'm going to play it one more time because this is not just Bill Gates. This is CNN. That are actually election day votes in person. And then the rest of the 75,000 are late earlys dropped off on election day. We do not know where these are from. These could be from anywhere in the county, all 75,000. This is not picked out of a certain area. These are not pulled by precinct. Uh, and so then the... And I suspect that the defense is going to be... We, we don't... We don't know where they're from uh, offhand or we didn't pull them out, you know, to influence. I mean, the, outcome, the problem but- with that is they keep magically counting the Democratic batches first and other people can figure out where the batches are. Somehow he can't. So this is a guy has been harshly critical, says the Republican Party needs a whole new Republican Party, hates the Trump wing. The whole McCain establishment wing had a lot of institutional influence in Arizona. And that's why we're seeing what we saw. Like, I'm not surprised that Pennsylvania, Michigan and Nevada, because Democrats control the election machinery up up and top left to right. I am surprised at Arizona slightly, 
but at the same time, not because so many of the old McCain types have institutional controls. And so it's uh, we'll see if election contests are brought. I hope some are at least brought. I am worried that courts will do what they did in 2020, which was attack anybody for merely questioning the holiness of an election. Um, the same group of people, by the way, who who ran Russiagate for four years, telling us that we're supposed to hold elections holy. That uh, the question is, are these elect are these folks election deniers, or are the media and the judges and the politicians fraud deniers? Well, but but, uh, but Hillary Clinton came out right before and said it's the right wing extremists who are literally trying to steal twenty twenty four. Robert, what is what is the latest now? Control of the Senate is with the Democrats, and it's still well, it depends. I mean, I mean. They're still not finished in Nevada uh, counting votes. The what it is as soon as uh, she took a lead, they ran to and say that she was going to win. Uh, the the I think the House will still go Republican based on available numbers, but who knows? Again, it's California. They keep counting and counting and catching ballots, catching ballots. If they keep the House, it will be a complete crock. I mean, the election will have been completely stolen. Period. End of story. And and at least half of the country will believe that. And 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 to to understand it. People have never believed that on this scale. You'd have to go all the way back to the Compromise of 1876, where it was stolen, where they called him his fraudulency. And that's why I called Biden his fraudulency the second. That's the last time we've had a bunch of people in America, half the country, think that our elections were the result of theft. There, there have been, uh, you know, usually it's about a quarter, the worst case, a quarter or a third. 2000, 2004, about half of Democrats thought it was stolen. 2020, uh, a majority of Republicans thought it was stolen, but it wasn't half the country. When you get a crazy result like this that makes absolutely no sense, when the when all the results in places that don't have these kind of methods of voting don't create these kind of results, people are going to uh, – they're not going to have any confidence in the outcome, especially if judges don't allow a meaningful hearing. You know, if, if people like me are wrong, put me to the test. Let me put, do a trial. Let the world watch it and uh, let, let, let the world see the truth. It's because courts are scared of that, that they're not going to allow that to occur because they know what's going on as well as everybody else. Uh, they're part of a professional class that wants to monopolize power. But I'll do a, a deeper dive into this and its related issues with the Duran on Tuesday at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time. We'll be talking about the craziness of American elections, its impact on the world, perception the world has of these American elections um, and other related issues. Fantastic. Who do we have for sidebar uh, this Wednesday? Do we know? Uh, no, uh, we're waiting to hear back from some folks. Okay, excellent. Um, now, Robert, I should I should end. Uh, I, I hear silence, which is typically a good thing. I hear uh, bonked. If anybody knows that show, it's Kikawaka, Camp Kikawaka. I hear. I just heard the theme song, so they start another episode. Uh, what did we miss thus far? If we're gonna, ah, we got well four four or so cases of consequence. One is the measles vaccine mandate case. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals re reversed the summary judgment granted for the government and said that there was clear evidence that referring people to, you know, these politicians attacking religious exemptions, calling people anti-vaxxers and so forth, that that was evidence that there was religious animus behind the attempt. What they did is they said, if you weren't vaccinated for the measles vaccine as a kid, you couldn't go to school, you couldn't even go out in public. And these were kids who had religious accommodations and exceptions. And so they sued under a uh, uh, violation of the First Amendment right free exercise clause. The district court said, nah, uh, this was all fine. You know, typical federal district court in New York. Um, and the Second Circuit, to its credit, said, nah, hold on a second. There was lots of evidence that the people who pushed this through didn't like religious people, didn't like religious accommodations, called them uh, idiotic anti-vaxxers. 
Uh, that should go to a jury. That's not for the court to decide. Reversed it, reinstated it. They're going to get a jury trial on that. That's great to see. Very big breakthrough on the vaccine context because it has con- uh, will have ramifications in multiple other cases and contexts across the country. Uh, Tyson Foods was caught stealing from farmers. What they do is they do a deal with a cattle farmer, and they know that if the farmer changes the way they make their meat, that their, their only buyer is going to be Tyson because of its de facto monopoly power in large parts of the meat industry. And so uh, then they then they went around and decided to screw him on the deal they originally cut with him that induced him to do the deal in the first place. He went to trial, won a big verdict against him, court affirmed it. Great to see. Uh, I'm always for Tyson. Tyson Foods is now bringing people back uh, that uh, that they fired under the vaccine mandate, but they're refusing to pay them back pay. So all those lawsuits against Tyson are going to keep coming, and I'm going to keep suing them and keep suing them and keep suing them. Um, uh the second small case, pit bull ban, and the and the logic for the pit bull ban was unless you can prove there's not a single rational reason for anyone to ban pit bulls, then it's constitutional for you to ban pit bulls. I'm not a big fan of this lowly rational basis review standard that that occurs in these kind of contexts, but it's what the Eighth Circuit did. So the city of Council Bluffs gets to keep pit bulls out of Council Bluff, even though. They're, they're- There's a lot of arguments against their ban, but apparently as long as they can find any argument in their favor, no problem. They're they're the assault canines of the canine world. So just they're they're scary, they're big, they're strong, and and people misuse them, so ban them. The uh, identity theft case before the U.S. Supreme Court, where what they're doing is they're basically saying, under this interpretation, if you do healthcare fraud, they can also charge you with aggravated identity theft. They're saying if you ever reference somebody else's name at any capacity, concerning your criminal conduct, that's aggravated identity theft, even if you didn't steal their ID to cause them any harm. And that isn't what identity theft was supposed to mean. And this is about the expanding, 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 loosening, liberalization of criminal laws so the federal government can put more people in prison whenever it wants, wherever it wants, however it wants. So the U.S. Supreme Court hopefully will reverse based on some questions they asked. So that was a good, good potential indicator from the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Fifth Amendment, uh, Flint cases went up in Michigan for the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. The question is, if you assert your Fifth Amendment, uh, or if you don't assert it, do you waive it forever? And the court made clear, no, you don't. That it has to be the same proceeding. And what does that mean? Not just the same case. It has to be a single testimonial event. So if you get up on the stand and waive your Fifth Amendment, for that time you're on the stand, you can't assert your Fifth Amendment. But you can assert it later on, even in the same case. Good reversal by the Fifth Circuit that overturned what a district court did. And probably one of the best cases of the week, uh, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, not Second Circuit, a federal district court in New York, basically invalid. New York went in and New York's concealed carry law gets overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. So what do they do? They go and pass another version that's even more restrictive. Well, and, after after vocally vowing not to abide by that court order, so they say we're we're gonna we're not gonna abide by it. We're gonna go redraft uh, slightly modified, equally uh, restrictive uh, regulation. And uh, fortunately, the court saw through it and invalidated pretty much the whole thing. And so, Second Amendment rights get a big, big win in New York. Well, uh, unfortunately, they they might need those rights in New York, uh, given Hochul's Hochul's uh, victory over. Zeldin, unless, uh, you know, things, things turn around. And the only, like, black pill case of the week, but it reminds you of the problems with conservative courts. Uh, Liggins versus Duncanville. 
So uh, a mother had her mentally ill son at home. He mm-hmm. started experiencing a men- uh, some episodes. So she calls his doctor. Uh, his doctor says, call 911. Uh, 911, the chief shows up. She explains he's not dangerous or anything else. He's just experiencing an episode. And he go, and she's like, you know, you're not going to go in there, are you? You're not going to shoot him. He's like, don't worry. I'm not going in. I'm the chief. I'm not going to shoot him. Why would I do that? And a few minutes later, he raids the house and shoots the kid. Yeah. According to the Fifth Circuit. Oh, yeah. So I was just saying, allegedly, he went for his cell phone and they shot him in the stomach. He survived. Went for his cell phone. That's why he shot him. Went for his cell phone. Yeah. Can you imagine? Well, I mean, the in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said the uh, the they got to go in there to help him to protect him. He might kill himself. So you shoot him. So to protect him, you shoot him. You you protect him from harming himself by shooting him. And apparently, according to the facts, right wing judges wrote this nonsense. Well, so according to the facts, he had years of mental illness or suffering with mental illness. When he had this break, he had stopped taking his medication. His mother calls and says, we're having an episode. But they sued Robert. I mean, I can sort of understand part of it. Like, I can understand you're going to someone who's mentally unwell off their meds, unpredictable. Now, how it goes straight from... Uh, don't shoot. We're not going to shoot him. We're going to bring in a negotiation team that we never actually bring in. We come in, shoot him in the stomach when he goes for his cell phone. How it goes from there, from zero to a hundred, it's a separate issue, and I think it's a, a police policy issue or or or, or practice yeah, well, issue. Here, they allege that informational sources show there's another protocol that uh, allege that the uh, he he deliberately lied to the mother. Allege that he because this was dismissed without any discovery being allowed. Uh, d- uh, that he also that he could have waited for the intervention team and that, that was the proper protocol. And the court said, oh, just informational sources and factual allegations aren't enough to survive a 12B6 motion, even though that's exactly the legal standard for a 12B6 motion. These are right-wing federal judges wanting to cover up for corrupt police officers, prosecutors, and law enforcement officials. And the same Fifth Circuit, again, a bunch of right-wing judges, did the same thing in the lockdown context. So the Golden Glow tanning salon sued the city of columbus mississippi had their business stripped for them from seven weeks they sued under the equal protection clause because they were treated differently than similarly situated businesses and sued under the takings clause that they were completely denied operating their business for seven weeks and what does the fifth circuit do they dodge the regulatory takings issue by saying well that issue wasn't preserved but you claim it's not a taking because they didn't trespass on your property and you could still use your property for some purpose it, 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 you know, you can't use it for your business's purposes. Somehow that's not a taking. They're watering down takings laws to where it means nothing, where the government can steal your property with no consequence. And then said, yeah, maybe it could have been equal protection law. And yeah, clearly all these lockdowns were bad ideas. Uh, but the but, you know, uh, how do they put it? It wasn't it was not well understood at the time. Yes, it was. Just your professional class colleagues were dead wrong. And rather than admit your culpability, you're giving them de facto legal amnesty like the Atlantic article wanted. So that was a uh, uh, unfortunate case out of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. I forget who I was just talking to about this. I said it's effective when they locked us in our homes and they said you can't travel outside of the city. They effectively took any property that other people might have had in other jurisdictions, in other areas. They said you can no longer use your own property but we're sure as hell going to expect you to pay your taxes on it. So we're, we're taking, we're taking and you're giving. It's the, it's the give and take. Um, exactly. The only last case was uh, a U.S. company found a, 
had a deal with a Chinese company. The Chinese company fell apart. The Chinese company took them to a Chinese arbitration. The Chinese arbitration wrote a big check, almost a seven-figure total check. And they came to the U.S. to enforce it in the United States. And a lot of people might not know the U.S. under the Federal Arbitration Act has included the New York Treaty. Uh, that's what it's called, the Convention on Foreign Arbitrations, that allow a, uh, a party to get a, a judgment from an arbitration panel in a foreign country and come and enforce it just like it's a judgment here in the U.S. And they even tried to say, try to get the courts in America to say they have to defer to those foreign courts. Luckily, they didn't do the latter. Uh, but and, and they did ultimately say that there has to be an arbitral agreement in place that is clear and specific and so forth. But it's another problem of the Federal Arbitration Act that is so broad now that foreign governments and foreign countries can create questionable judgments and enforce it against you, just like you had due process in America when you never did. That's it. Interesting dilemma, but um, arbitration is the way to go now. It's it's cheap, confidential, and you can do whatever you want in foreign countries and then come and insist that it be ratified in uh, in America. Nama Papi says, uh, globalism, isn't it grand? Now, everybody who has been supporting with Rumble Rants, I've been screen grabbing them, and I will do a Locals exclusive reading of all of them and answering of as many as I can. And Robert, if you can make it in, we'll make it in. Uh, so you're on Tuesday on the Durand. What time? Uh, one o'clock Eastern. Okay, fantastic. And do you have any other appearances in the upcoming week? Uh, probably with Richard Barris. Tuesday night, uh, but that isn't confirmed yet. Uh, so the other ones are, are are not confirmed. And to some of the questions at our locals live chat, what would be the usual stoppers preventing a tech and legal startup from automating FOIA requests? Uh, there wouldn't be any prevent pro- prohibition on doing that. That's a good idea. Sounds like the great scam. The USA gives funds to the Ukraine. The Ukraine invests in FTX. And then, whoops, the company goes under. What a surprise. And Democrats get lots of donations. Isn't that sweet? And there's a, a, I'm a, re- oh, I'm go, a retired. Go, go oh, sorry. I'm a retired psych nurse. Never call cops for a mental break. Sadly, that's true. Sadly, that's, that doctor gave bad advice. Um, the Please address the concerns about the tabulation software. Those are the machines that magically broke down on election day in Arizona. And I'm deeply suspect of how that happened. Uh, And what affected House representatives like Jim Jordan threatening investigation on the Dems before the election? None, none that were apparent. The, The problem with all the people saying that the abortion Supreme Court decision changed it or there was a youth surge. How do you explain New York and Florida and Texas and all these other districts across the country going one way and then districts in these closely contested states somehow going the other way? Right. I mean, what, do young people not exist in Florida? Do pro-choice people not exist but, in New But York? also in, in New York. I mean, that, that's that's the more shocking one, which has been traditionally quite, quite it's, blue. What they have is no mass mail-in voting in New York. That's what they have. Florida has strict rules governing it. Texas has strict rules governing it. That's the difference. All right, Robert. Well, uh, I don't know. Can you give us a white pill on this? I mean, the, the, everyone, I, I, even I'm feeling rather dark-pilled. I, I don't want to say black-pilled just yet. I'm watching this thing. Holy crap. It's not as bad as it could have been, but that's not much of a white pill, Robert. I mean, well, the, not the, the guy they're trying to crush and kill and who this is really all about more so than anyone else is my prediction will be soon, maybe on Tuesday, maybe announcing his candidacy for presidency of the United States. So the only way you crush a guy like Donald J. Trump is you got to put him six feet under. As long as he's living and breathing, you can try to intimidate him, coerce him, blackmail him, extort him. Uh, none of it's going to work. So for whatever faults and frailties the man may have, he clearly inspires fear in the right people. Uh, 
And I, for one, will welcome him running for president in 2024. Is there any political infighting between? I mean, he's 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 jabbing at oh, uh, there's, there's a bunch of people. Yeah, there's a bunch of people trying to promote DeSantis as an expense, but they're doing so in order to uh, derail both. So if you look at who's promoting DeSantis, it's people who want both DeSantis and Trump taken out of the picture. This is all about an obsession over Trump, uh, more so than anything else. They invented these election methods and mechanisms in part to achieve that, to defeat Trump at all costs, at all prices, at all expense. I think what will happen is uh, more people will wake up to the need for certain legal reform. People will wake up to needing to counterbalancing Democrats in some of these areas. Uh, and 2024 will be a uh, will be a real sweep. Uh, I think that's what that that's what will uh, ultimately tra- transition to. Uh, you know, the uh, you know, since 1775, we've been fighting for freedom and liberty. No reason to give up now. Fantastic. Everybody stay tuned. I'll be live tomorrow. We'll have a sidebar this week. And uh, Robert, stick around. We'll say our proper goodbyes. Oh, I said I was going to play some video at the end. I forgot what video I want to play. I'll play it tomorrow. Everybody, thank you all for being here. And uh, deep breath. Stay the course. See you tomorrow.